right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Calvin Pollock. How's it going, Alex? I'm doing pretty good, Calvin. How are you? I'm loving it. We're out here in uh, College Park, Maryland, for the Rhetoric Society of America Summer Institute. Having a great time, and uh, excited to bring you another episode. Absolutely. We are actually literally outside right now. We're sitting on the porch of our Airbnb here in uh, Riverdale. Riverdale. The, same as in the Archie comics. Uh, that were <laughs> The same pl- the place where the Archie comics were based. You know, I, I just had burgers with Jughead for lunch. I'm feeling pretty good. How about you? Well, hopefully this episode will be just as funny as all of the Archie comics. Yes, so. exactly. That's really the that's the watermark that we aim for. I think with most of our podcast episodes, if we can get to Archie Comics level, we're we're doing pretty good. We're happy, absolutely. Uh, so we're bringing you today another episode in our wildly popular series, Rejoinder. So this is where I will find a hot take from out on the internet that has something to do with academia, with rhetoric, uh, with politics, or some combination of all three, and I will read those takes to my co-hosts in this case. Typically hot takes. Typically very hot takes, ones that are very misguided or they have very flawed, faulty arguments uh, and just things that they they really need to rethink it. You know, that was kind of, that was one of the things that we thought about calling it was rethink this. And generally that's what we try to do is we try to remediate the flaws in those arguments and give a better, you know, reading of that. Encourage a revise and (laughs) resubmit. If you will. <laughs> this is basically the peer review process, but for op-eds that are already published. Yeah. So we are doing the the labor uh, that the editors at Spurious Online Publications uh, refused to do or just didn't... Didn't realize they had to do. Didn't realize they had to, exactly. So today, I'll, I'll just frame our conversation here. Before we dive in, we've got a double header today. Uh, two articles on a similar topic or sort of surrounding a similar topic that I two think... Two articles, jeez. I know, right? So I'm really torturing you with this one. I know that you're looking forward to it, though, Calvin. I am. I'm, really... I'm full of joy. I know that none of this will resemble hell. And I'm excited. This is so. really like your zone, though. Like you, you just you thrive on being angry at at, at online stuff. So. That's true. I use it as my fuel. That's right. So, what is the question that you have for me today? Sure. So, the framing question that I want to pose to you here is that: Do you do you feel like you're free to say all the things that you want to on this podcast? Do you feel the 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 freedom to really just express yourself and all of your political views? in an unencumbered way? Do you feel like I stifle that at all whenever we're on the podcast? Uh, often. Uh, what? What are, you, what are you talking you're about? You're just so nice that I can't be as mean and as negative Calvin, as I want to be. You're making me feel so bad right now. Why are you doing this? Why are you making me feel so bad? Uh, because I have wanted to get this off my chest for a long time. You know, it's the way I feel. It's my truth. So, wow. Uh, so you so you feel like there's a chilling effect. I put forward such a nice persona, which, by the way, is not true in real life. I'm actually very mean. Uh, mean, in, in rude, rude, rude uh, crude, inappropriate. Crude, a horrible person. And that makes you feel like you can't say... All the things. That, so what, like, okay, pretend I'm not that person. Say what's on your mind. What are you feeling? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I think the podcast could be reaching a much larger audience. I think uh, we could be attacking these topics from a, a much more nuanced, kind of theoretically grounded, pragmatic, politically oriented, and yet highly polyvocalic uh, approach. That all sounds that sounds perfectly reasonable. And you know, I, I think that the the people that we're going to read from today would definitely 
absolutely 100% agree with you. Well, at least in the fact that they feel stifled. Okay. So, Great. Uh, so we're going to dive My comrades. into it. Yes, your, your comrades in arms. So our first article that, uh, that I'm going to read for us here is called Federal Funding, the First Amendment, and Free Speech on Campus, written by Lauren Cooley and published in Quillette. Here we go. Oh, Quillette. Oh, Quillette. Good good quality stuff. That's <laughs> what that's actually how you say that word is qual quillate. Quillate. <laughs> It's not. That's what they na- they named it after what they wanted to accomplish with it, which is right. quillite journalism. Yes, um, yes. Quillite takes. Here we go. On Thursday, March 22nd, President Trump signed Executive Order 13865, intended to address the free speech crisis in higher education. This had been expected following the president's speech at CPAC earlier this month. What was not expected was that the EO, the executive order, would also address the skyrocketing cost of tuition and the student loan debt crisis. All three of these issues were gathered together under the umbrella of enhancing the quality of post-secondary education, quote, by making it more affordable, more transparent, and more accountable. I was one of the dozens of free speech advocates in attendance at the signing in the historic East Room. The text of the executive order reads, in part, quote, In particular, my administration seeks to promote free and open debate on college and university campuses. Free inquiry is an essential feature of our nation's democracy. It promotes learning, scientific discovery, and economic prosperity. Folks, we must encourage institutions... Sorry, I added a little bit of that. We must encourage institutions to appropriately account for this bedrock principle in their administration of student life and avoid creating environments that stifle competing perspectives, thereby potentially impeding beneficial research and undermining learning. Clearly all words that Trump himself wrote. Yes, you can... (laughs) Undoubtedly words that that his brain has devised. Exactly. um, And invented. Precisely. Uh, Love to see it. You love to hear it, honestly. In his voice, you can really tell that that's that's what he said and thinks. Right. So this author was very excited that our president was finally standing up for free speech, or I guess continuing to stand up for free speech as he has done since his inauguration. That's that's exactly right. right. During his accompanying remarks, President Trump said, quote, under the guise of speech codes, safe spaces, and trigger warnings, these universities have tried to restrict free thought, impose total conformity, and shut down the voices of, of great young Americans like those here today. Not everyone was convinced. Ted Mitchell, president of the American Council of Education, called the order, quote, a solution in search of a problem. Boy, what a bummer, huh? But some of us who have followed the free speech debate have become more concerned about the litany of problems, legal and cultural, in pressing need of solutions. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has reported almost a third of universities in 2018 maintained, quote, speech codes that clearly and substantially restrict freedom of speech. The report concluded that another 58% of universities have policies vague enough to allow constitutionally protected speech to be suppressed. Boy, this sounds like a really, really huge problem on college campuses, huh? I mean, so who was that group? The Foundation for... The Foundation for Individual Rights. Ah, FIRE, right? It's, I think yes. it's FIRE. No, no, yeah. no, no. And, yeah. and, 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 education, to, yes. and to be fair about FIRE, my understanding is that this group generally has been pretty even-handed. They've even spoken out against like pro-Palestine speakers being suppressed on campuses oh. as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. So FIRE is one of the more reputable of these groups. Yeah. 
Some of those willing to acknowledge these issues have nevertheless voiced concerns about federal government overreach and the constitutionality of the executive branch revoking funding from institutions of higher education. The president's executive order directs 12 government agencies responsible for bestowing grants to ensure that public institutions fulfill their obligation to uphold students' First Amendment rights. So again, we're talking about this author is giving some voice to the people who would cry foul about the fact that there's the possibility that federal funding for some universities could be revoked if they, quote unquote, suppress free speech rights. Right. And that itself is a is a threat to academic freedom because it's yes. a threat to the ability of these universities to determine their own policies and, and standards of practice and communication. So I'm sure there are First Amendment lawyers on both sides of this issue. Yes, no, absolutely. And this is, I think that that's a key point that we're going to need to keep in mind throughout this episode <laughs> is that all of this kind of comes down to what is supposed to be protected by the First Amendment, which is, of course, you know, a protection from censorship by the government of right. your speech. Anxiety about executive overreach is misplaced, however. Public colleges and universities function just like every other public institution, as an extension of the government itself. So universities, public universities, are just an extension of the government itself. I mean, not really, but <laughs> in certain regards, perhaps. This author argues here, they are therefore required to uphold the values enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment rights of those who participate or affiliate with the school. In his speech at the signing ceremony, President Trump observed that many universities have become increasingly hostile to free speech and the First Amendment, despite receiving billions in subsidies from the American taxpayer. This is not acceptable, and the EO announces that. Quote, the heads of covered agencies shall, in coordination with the director of the Office of Management and Budget, take appropriate steps in a manner consistent with applicable law, including the First Amendment, to ensure institutions that receive federal research or education grants promote free inquiry, including through compliance with all applicable federal laws, regulations, and policies. I mean, okay. He, this is I, th I think this is the the nub with with every free speech concern trolling argument mm -hmm. here is if this is really happening, it should be litigable. Right. Shouldn't it? I mean, the First Amendment to the Constitution is I mean, the Constitution is the highest law in the land in the right. United States. Right. So if it's being violated anywhere in the country or in U.S. territories, there should be a legal process for, you know, injured parties to seek redress. Right. So why is it necessary to litigate this through an executive order? Is it not superfluous? Yeah, exactly. And I think it also, there. there's a thing that it also really overlooks. And I think this is, again, when, when some examples get brought up here of the kinds of quote-unquote speech that is being quote-unquote suppressed, the idea that it's all federal funds that are paying for these, you know, for these, these universities free speech to, suppressions. Yes, to and particularly to host these events is, I think, a little bit suspect. So we can, right. it's, it's pretty sus. So we can dig into that in a more real way here. So again, this author is arguing from the standpoint 
universities, public universities specifically, are government entities. They are extensions of the federal government, and therefore they are forced to uphold the First Amendment in the same way that you know, any other government institution would. As government entities, institutions of higher education have a legal obligation not to interfere with speech, religion, assembly, petition, and so on. If they violate First Amendment rights, they're in violation of their own governing documents. Trump's executive order does not dictate how federal agencies should enforce free speech requirements. However, the roughly $40 billion that universities receive in federal research dollars every year offers the executive considerable leverage. Since World War II, the federal government has partnered with academic institutions as subcontractors, doling out billions of research projects in fields of interest to the U.S. government, including medicine, technology, energy, and <clears throat> defense. And I mean, you know, I'll have to wait and see what this is building towards, but mm -hmm. I think my response to all of this, again, is that, in fact, that requirement is not just limited to public universities. In mm -hmm. fact, all universities are required to adhere to constitutional law mm -hmm. um, because constitutional law is the highest law in the land throughout the entire United States. So right. I, it, it feels like concern trolling yes. oriented towards particular public universities where controversial things have happened. Yes. Uh, uh, not to potentially spoil an article that I haven't read. No, no, I think that you're you're right on point and you're right on track with the with the argument that's going on here. In future, university or in the future, universities that fail to uphold free speech could be punished by the federal government withholding or delaying payments, prematurely ending a contract, suspending eligibility for future contracts, or by filing a lawsuit for contractual breach. This dependence on research dollars and the responsibility of a public entity to maintain the rights of American citizens will give research institutions, quote, skin in the free speech game and encourage them to demand that other parts of the university start to behave. Okay, so now we're getting into a little bit more of the specific thread of this argument, which is talking about specific sectors of the university uh, that this person thinks, quote-unquote, need to behave. Could this lead to a decline in vital research if campus administrators decide that upholding social justice ideology is more important than research grants? This might be a concern if there were a struggle to fill vital research projects, but that is not the case. Federal research grants are either highly competitive or so narrowly tailored to idiosyncratic projects that the market demand would not fluctuate. In fact, there's so much federal research funding available that the National Science Foundation spent $375,000 on a two-year study to determine what effects the availability of federal funding for research has on scientists' career choices and scientific outcomes. While some colleges may decide to focus on social justice at the expense of research, critical scientific discovery will continue. Wasteful studies will diminish, and students and faculty looking to conduct important research will elect to attend universities committed to that purpose. Okay, great. Let's all go home. We're done. <laughs> the free marketplace of ideas will... will uh, the will, good will out. Yes, exactly. There are additional worries that the broad nature of the executive order could inadvertently chill protest on campus, since the impact of protest on free expression is part of the problem the EO is designed to address. So again, protest, the impact of protest on free expression is part of the problem here. Right, and so this is where you start to see the internal contradictions, right? Because yes. we're saying... We need to cut down on protest to save free speech. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, exactly. Go on. No platforming activists have become adept at using the heckler's veto, the threat of violence or protest, to force the cancellation of speakers and events by organizers unable to afford security costs. Security is no idle concern, since campus protests have occasionally been allowed to get completely out of hand. In 2014, Berkeley student protesters broke down the door and ran Silicon Valley tycoon Peter Thiel off the stage during a question-and-answer session. Then, in 2017, Antifa protesters vandalized the campus of UC Berkeley when Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak. I mean, how are we defining violence? Because, you know, it's very useful to have that kind of couplet of protest or violence. Mm -hmm. And then the two examples were given of things getting completely out of hand involved property damage. Right. Is that violence or is it light? vandalism right that's kind of where this murky line is right between like what we refer to like what is the threat of violence also i don't know the examples really bother me here because sure. it's people like i mean, I mean Milo Yiannopoulos is reprehensible Milo Yiannopoulos <laughs> is doing horrifying. he's doing violence yes peter Thiel is literally profiting from violence yes. uh, i mean palantir as a corporation gets millions of dollars in government contracts to run drone and surveillance systems that literally do violence around the world. So the idea that people opposing these figures are doing violence is is a little, if nothing else, it's not as nuanced as it could be. Absolutely. Honestly, I think it's I think it's laughable by comparison. <laughs> like I'm trying to for Peter Thiel, but I am trying to meet them where they are, which for is sure. that. You know, we need a lot more nuance, folks. Yeah, exactly. Contrary to what many campus activists believe, speech is not violence. So these people, their speech is not violence, and violence is not protected speech. Universities have a duty to maintain peace and to employ a police presence when necessary. Got to give some credit for the chiasmus there. Yeah, absolutely. Shout yeah, out. Shout out. For, shout, support our tropes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, uh, we, we need to employ a police presence, too. The author just had to throw that in there. Sure. More police on campus. Good stuff. Uh, inviting provocative speakers will inevitably elicit controversy, and universities must provide space for all viewpoints to be expressed, so long as they remain peaceful, and so long as one side is not permitted to drown out the other. The right to protest a speaker or register disapproval does not include the right to prevent them from delivering their remarks. We should remember that in a free society, the protection of the First Amendment is more important to the dissenter than the consensus of the mob. Okay, but um, we have a lot going on here defining the crowd as a mob. The idea that these people are actually being prevented from speaking. Uh, I'm not certain that that's the case because they have many, many other channels to reach lots of people. And also that that it's even feasible to keep these people safe when their ideas are so toxic and incendiary. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to read that, you know, I mean, it is the it's the responsibility of the people who are speaking to, I mean, they hold such reprehensible viewpoints that they draw a fiery response. Like, I mean, if they, yeah, if you you want to dish it out, you better be able to take it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. So 
here's another thing where uh, the author has, of course, an exception to their own rule, which is a hallmark of a of a good argument, is that you make sure to provide a, uh, a cover for a contradictory claim. <clears throat> Finally, religious institutions need not worry that President Trump's executive order will interfere with their freedom to uphold the core tenets and values of their faiths. You want to guess where this one's going? It is understandable that a Catholic school, for instance, given the nature of its specific mission, should not wish to provide a platform on their campus for abortion advocacy. Uh, okay. So, I guess, why? Because freedom of religion trumps freedom of speech? Yes, essentially, that's what the author is saying here. And also, the fact that apparently, well, I guess that Catholic institutions don't receive federal dollars, which I don't know if that's necessarily true for all cases i don't either at least for research dollars i'm sure that there are some you know institutions that are you know jesuit or sort of catholic that are receiving some of that funding right so by that proxy you know if you receive federal funds if you receive any federal research grants you are required to uphold the laws of the you know the amendments of the constitution right (laughs) so every student who attends a religious school has agreed to adopt that institution's mission statement (laughs) Again, going to great lengths to really cover for the Catholic Church here. Sure. During the admissions process and student orientation, it is made clear which teachings, ideology, and viewpoints will be taught on and banned from the campus. Wait, so why is that okay for the Catholics but not for the heathens? <laughs> because they make their they make it clear up front. They make it clear right away that it's like, we're Catholic, no abortion. Nope. So Berkeley doesn't make that clear with its glossy uh, uh, <laughs> images of diversity and, and social justice. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I'm not certain that this tracks. <laughs> I don't think it does. It is for this reason that Trump's EO draws a distinction between the obligations on public schools and private schools. There we go. While uh, public schools are expected to comply with their First Amendment responsibilities, private schools must comply only with their own, quote, stated institutional policies regarding freedom of speech. Public colleges and universities are advertised as places of open academic inquiry where a rigorous exploration of ideas takes place. Most students enter public institutions with the expectations that their rights remain protected, unaware that they are restricted until they are prevented from exercising them. It will be interesting to see if the Trump administration takes a reactive or a proactive approach to restricting funding, warning offending colleges of their intent to strip funding unless something changes. Either way, the executive order is a step in the right direction. The requirement that colleges adhere to a transparent speech code which protects academic debate in return for federal dollars is both reasonable and measured. It empowers the federal government to be better stewards of public funds while upholding the rights of its student citizens. Thanks for all the freedom, Father Trump. True harbinger of American freedom. No chilling effects at all. No, no suppression of views uh, from this president. He is truly, you know, just a, a real, you know, protector of that First Amendment right. You can tell it in everything he says. He's our dear leader, and there's nothing at all unfree about calling him such. Yes, exactly. So that's the end of that first article there. Uh, There's a note down at the bottom that says, yeah, it's... Lauren Cooley is an editor at the Washington Examiner, surprise, surprise, and has a college speaking tour about free speech. Okay, guys, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go on a, uh, a, a a music tour this year about uh, it's my music concert about music concerts. 
um, <laughs> where I'm going to play music instruments in the style of music instruments. <laughs> and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun for me. And we're all looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what you're, what that response really leads us to is like, honestly, I mean, that's a pretty strong indication of like what most of the speakers who are being quote unquote suppressed or, you know, like people are basically saying, no, we don't want these awful views uh, voiced anywhere near our campuses. They really, you know, most of them are going to give talks on free speech. That's what Milo's, you know, one of his speaking tours was all about. That's, you know, what like Ann Coulter, when she was going around doing all that stuff was, you know, this is about, I'm giving a speech about speech. <laughs> There's a couple of things. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not really contributing vital, specific, rich content by any right. means. But also there's just, there's a certain level of failing, like getting owned everywhere and lacking yes. any sort of gig. So I'm going to just cry foul when I can't find a gig, which is kind of what we've seen happening to a lot of these people that they literally are paying people to have dinner with them as Milo Yiannopoulos. We're not paying, well, offering, <laughs> you know. Pay me twenty dollars and you can have dinner with me, as as right. um, Milo and others have been doing, and uh, I think that's where this is really coming from. Is is not this this noble, laudatory, publicly oriented goal of free speech as much as it is? I really need to find a way to make money, and you're not letting me have it, mm -hmm. and that's doing violence to me. I think it's also important here to really challenge this author on the point, because again, this, this whole thing is going back to that central conceit of universities better watch out or they are going to be potentially stripped of their funding. This is essentially the argument that the author is kind of predicting here is that universities are going to be stripped of funding if they don't provide a venue for Speakers that are brought in, quite frankly, at the behest of other organizations on campus that are getting funds from other places, you know, right. like, I mean, a lot of these, you know, when Turning Point USA invites a speaker to a campus, that money that they're using to get that speaker in there to give them a platform, that's coming from the Cokes, you know, right. that's not coming from the taxpayers. This is all not exactly like, I mean, you know, the venue itself in the university is the thing that is receiving public dollars, but like, that's a real stretch, I think, to make that argument that's, you know, it is the eternal right of these people's views to be heard when it's really, you know, private money that is what's putting them there in the first place. The other thing we have to wonder is to what extent the forces that are pushing for this want to strip these institutions of federal funding anyways, yes. and they're looking for any sort of pretext to do that. Exactly. And that leads us very naturally into our second article, which just dropped a couple of days ago as of the recording of this episode. Here we go again. Here we go. PC insanity may mean the end of American universities by Roger Kimball. Classic, well-known crank. <laughs> I'm really more of a fan of Mac insanity. <laughs> what is that? I'm a Mac. I'm a, oh, I'm a Mac yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, I'm I see you're using a ThinkPad here, but uh, I, I am using. I'm a over PC. here with my MacBook Pro, uh, drinking a latte. So oh, thank wow. you very much. Wow. I'm, you know, I feel this is very... this is American freedom. That's right. <laughs> the freedom to choose Apple or PC. So this is published in the New York Post. Uh, again, very quality venue. Nothing wrong there. Nothing to see here. Just great, great journalism comes out of the New York Post. The New York 
post through it. <laughs> just post your way post through it, it, baby. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay, so here we go. <clears throat> People used to talk about the ends of the university and how academic establishment was failing its students. Today, more and more people are talking about the end of the university. Did Trump write this? <laughs> more and more people are talking about it, this folks. Is, this is going to be a trope that we're seeing a lot in. I, I think that that's, that's a very distinctive trope that you and I have talked about off mic as being something that's you know kind of unique about you know President Trump's rhetoric is the more and more people are talking about this. And the fact that this is being taken up by other writers, I think, is very telling. Here. You love to see it. You love to see it. You absolutely do. The idea that it is... It's time to think about closing them rather than reforming them. <laughs> so really laying it all out in the line in that second sentence here. Last month at a conference in London, the distinguished British professor, also a conservative crank, Sir Roger Scruton added his voice to the chorus when responding to a questioner who complained of the physical violence meted out to conservative students at Birkbeck University. There were two possible responses to the situation, Sir Roger said. One was to start competing institutions outside the academic establishment that welcomed conservative voices. The other possibility was, quote, Get rid of universities altogether. All right, so a couple things going on here. Number one, the idea that there aren't any <laughs> institutions outside of the academy where exactly. conservative voices are welcome. Have you ever heard of banks <laughs> or, you know, defense contractors? Yes. You, you can find a lot of money being conservative. Oh, like, absolutely. Believe me. Uh, you're going to be just fine, folks. There's so much money, folks. There's the folks, most, the most money. You've the never most seen this much money. You've never seen this. Just much start money. being okay with killing little kids. Yes, exactly. That's all you, you would. You just have to cop to the most reprehensible moral values in the universe, and then you can you can make money, folks. It's all right folks, there. It's, it's the all taking. right there. More money than you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing that, you know, the, the thing that belies this whole argument is the people who are coming to these campuses are coming there because there are people who are putting up massive amounts of money for them to do these speaking tours. Like they're getting paid this stuff because there are organizations willing to host them. So that other possibility was to get rid of universities altogether. That response was met with enthusiastic applause. Sir Roger went on to qualify his recommendation, noting that a modern society required institutions to pursue science and engineering, but the humanities, which at most colleges and universities have devolved into cesspools of identity politics and grievance studies, should be starved of funding and ultimately shut down. It's an idea that's getting more and more traction. All right, so in what way might we imagine that threatening to shut down institutions of learning and communication and scholarship and debate, might that not be a threat to free speech as well? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like spitballing here. The other thing I want to say about this is that this idea that there's violence being done to conservative students, what I think is so funny is that these are the same people who constantly bemoan the lack of traditional masculinity amongst yes. the virgin figure in, in, in today's <laughs> liberal, uh, hyper-liberal society. Yes. They're and also incredibly weak. They're also getting, just getting their, their asses kicked 24-7. Yes. They're, they're total dweebs and nerds, and yet yeah, we just should getting, be terrified of them. <laughs> 
Well, yes. And, and that, that's my point is that like somehow these conservative kids are just getting stuffed into lockers right and left. I mean, how is that happening if if what we're being told about the death of masculinity is is really the case? I mean, what are they yeah. doing, like using some sort of social justice jujitsu techniques. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's that is mi- what we mind all... powers. Yeah. Social justice, my having a social justice ideology, it gives you Jedi mind powers. That's the, that's the new conceit here. Sure. Love it. Love it. In a remarkable essay in Quillette titled After Academia, Alan Farrington summed up the growing consensus. Again, is that growing citation needed? Eh. We need to stop wringing our, this is a quote, we need to stop wringing our hands over how to save academia and acknowledge that its disease is terminal. End quote. Is he right? It's too soon to say for sure. But if so, Farrington is correct that its demise, quote, need not be cause for solemnity. On the contrary, the end of academia, quote, can inspire celebration because it could allow us to shift our energies away from the abject failure of modern education and to refocus on breathing new life into the classical alternative, end quote. A huge amount of attention and public anxiety has been expended on the plight of free speech on campus. Every season, the situation seems to get a little worse. Every season? Every season. <laughs> In the fall, it was uh, it was uh, Joe Rogan. In December, you know, in the in the winter, it was Peter Thiel. In the spring, it was Milo Yiannopoulos. I'm just like, what is this? The Real Housewives of uh, Berkeley? <laughs> and what are we? They're treating this like reality television. Yeah. yeah. Guest speakers are routinely shouted at, deplatformed, or disinvited. Students and teachers alike are bullied into silence or crave an apology by self-appointed virtue-crats in college administrations and among designated victim groups among the students. Oh my god, can you just repeat that sentence? Yes. Students and teachers alike are bullied into silence or craven apology by self-appointed virtue-crats. <laughs> In college administrations and among designated victim groups among the students. Again, we're just designated victim groups. Who's designating them? Yeah, I mean, again, this is such dog whistling language that you really just like, again, you hate to see it because this is one of those things that people probably don't acknowledge their bias towards. Like when you say something like, you know, social justice ideology, uh, grievance studies, designated victim groups, we're talking, let's just be honest here about women and minorities and LGBT people. We're talking about people who are materially marginalized in society, who have real claims that need redress. And you're assuming a conspiracy yes. to designate them victim groups, which inevitably heads towards anti-Semitism as well. Absolutely. There is such a huge amount of like, they, you know, they probably hate me for saying this, but there's such a huge amount of white privilege that it takes to like believe something like this. How do you, ugh, it's disgusting. But the issue isn't really, or not only, free speech. Brett Weinstein, a former biology professor, was hounded out of Evergreen State College when he objected to a, quote, day of absence rally that insisted that all whites stay off campus for a day. Since then, he has been frequently invited to talk about free speech on college campuses. (laughs) Oh, great. Okay. So... Anyway, yeah, clearly somebody who's who's being marginalized. Yeah, very oppressed. For his, for very his views. Yeah. 
Good. Uh, but he notes that the real crisis in education isn't about free speech. Rather, it is about, quote, a breakdown in the basic logic of civilization. The basic logic of civilization. Yes. What is that logic? Is it just kind of if P then Q sort of, I mean, does logic no longer work? Can we not do formal proofs? If you give me a, you know, a set of uh, variables, can I not derive the outcome of certain combinations of them? Is that what's happening here? I mean, what, what do we mean by the basic logic of civilization? The weak, maybe the, the strong destroy the weak. Yeah, without, I guess. without opposition. There's I guess no, that's the basic logic. There's no real. Again, this is probably a dog whistle kind of thing because it right. doesn't it doesn't give a lot of context for what that actually means. And whenever civilization is brought up, oh yeah, you think of civilizing process, and 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 I mean the alternative is savagery. The alternative yes. is. The state of nature. Exactly. Uh, which is assumed to be non-white, non-normative. Yes. Civilization and civilized civilizing has always been an ideograph that is hearkened to basically like settler colonialism and used as arguments for basically taking over oppressing disciplining and assimilating other marginalized populations. Also just the fact that it, I think that you're right to call attention to that phrase, the logic of civilization, because it assumes that there is a logic to civilization. And that alone in itself is, I think a very contestable claim right. that maybe the people who are reading this don't think that it is. And they assume that like civilizations, human societies are supposed to adhere to a particular logic. And right? that that logic is is defensible. I mean, right. as I alluded to before, I think to the extent that there's any basic logic of certainly our civilization, um, probably any civilization that's existed to this point in human history, it's the strong destroy the weak. Right. And if that's the basic logic that's breaking down, I don't know that we should really be rending our garments over it. Yeah, exactly. No, I I think you're exactly right. If that's the tradition that we're that we're that is supposed to be breaking down here, I think that that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, so this is the author really showing off their their stylistic writing skills here, referring to that breakdown and the basic logic of civilization. Academia is the crucible, the engine room of this rot. Love me a good mixed metaphor like that. Yeah. The, the crucible, the engine room. Alex, where, where 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 are you right now? <laughs> oh oh, you're in the you're in the you're in your crucible engine room. Okay, yes. I'll, I'll just leave your dinner out on the counter. Yeah, don't bring it in here because it'll rot. Okay. That's what it does in the crucible in the engine room is it rots. Okay, cool. <laughs> Talk to you later. Thanks, man. Uh, but the breakdown of which Weinstein speaks is not confined to college campuses. The revolutionary intolerance that has made college campuses so inhospitable to free expression and the impulses of civilization. There it is again. The impulses of civilization. Wait, I thought it was logic. <laughs> Are we just reacting to our impulses, or are we adhering to formal logic? I mean, if you're if you're a rational person, your impulses are logical. Logic. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. Right. That's right. Has also deeply affected the woke mandarins of social media and big tech. It has made serious inroads into the HR departments of the Fortune 500 and elsewhere in the world of business. And it has insinuated itself into the values and practices of most governmental agencies, many of which have yet to meet a politically correct left-wing cause they do not embrace. (laughs) 
most what was okay. the part about government agencies it has insinuated itself into the values and practices of most governmental agencies many of which have yet to meet a politically correct left-wing cause they do not embrace there's a republican in the president <laughs> What the hell? The I mean, Senate is controlled by conservatives. And also government agencies are are run by the executive branch. Like yes. what what politically correct <laughs> causes are they pursuing? I mean, is the CIA like doing politically political correctness by <laughs> doing drone strikes in Yemen and Somalia? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> is Ben Carson doing political correctness by like destroying the HUD agency like I just that is just such a such a canard I can't even believe that that made it past the editor I mean it's the New York Post so obviously sure. you know standards are low here but like again that's just one of those things where it's like there's no basis in reality no evidence that's no evidence no basis for any of that the economist Herb Stein once observed that what cannot go on forever won't in the coming decade we will see many so-called liberal arts colleges close their doors we will also see more alternatives to traditional colleges many of these will be on dash line <laughs> they'll be online on but the, the spelling here is on dash line uh-huh. so yeah. again yeah on the line on the line some will be local ad hoc ventures all will be rebelling against the poisonous hand of identity politics is that it No, there's two more paragraphs. Oh, Jesus. Thoughtful citizens will want to hasten this process. Their best bet is to pursue strategies to starve Academia Incorporated of funds. Academia Incorporated. Yeah, again. Oh, good. Yeah, we're again, we're good thing that we're mixing our, our uh, you know, one one side of this argument says that this is a part of the federal government. The other, it's a, it's insider, a big business it's with a, insidious interests. Exactly, a huge cabal. Profiting off of political correctness. Exactly. Left-wing revolution. <laughs> yeah, that's def- profitable. very profitable. Definitely gets all the grants. Yeah. Uh, no public money should be feeding institutions that claim to be educating students, but really are simply indoctrinating them. Parents and alumni, rightly disgusted by what these institutions have done to their children, should refuse to subsidize their perversion. Once upon a time, universities were institutions dedicated to the pursuit of truth and the transmissions of the highest values of our civilization. Today, most are dedicated to the destruction of those values. It is past time to call them to account. Most? That's incredibly (laughs) sweeping. I mean, most universities are are dedicated to the destruction of the... the, Okay, what values, obviously, but like... If we're assuming that this is a conservative person writing this and that most colleges and institutions are dedicated to the destruction of those... Like, most of them are in the tank with military contractors, let's be honest. Well, military and and just, like, just training students to join the economy, which is conservative in nature. You you make more money as a corporation by being largely conservative. Yeah, uh, you can reach the most number of people by not rocking the boat. So therefore, if if these are the institutions that universities are pipelines towards, it stands to reason that training them to enter those pipelines will be a largely conservative venture. Right. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think, again, that belies the whole point of this argument is that this is 
I don't think it's, even though it's saying that it's calling for the shuttering of institutions, I don't really think that that's what this article is driving at, nor the other article that we referred to here as well. I mean, both are sort of alluding to this idea that universities may be or should be stripped of their funding, of their accreditation, basically, you know, of their right to exist, essentially, on the basis of certain speech activities that are taking place on those campuses, people expressing certain views, you know, that are, you know, of course, you know, in some ways reacting to, you know, speakers coming to their campuses uh, who hold these sort of reprehensible views. So basically talking about taking away the free speech rights of people at universities by stripping them of federal funding, which is actually a anti-First Amendment (laughs) claim. And in addition, they're really talking about the humanities here. Let's be completely honest here. You know, in this article earlier, this person said, Sir Roger Scruton said that a modern society requires institutions to pursue science and engineering, but the humanities, which at most colleges and universities have devolved into cesspools of identity politics, these are the ones that need to be done away with. So I think the argument that really underlies all of this is people don't like basically the kinds of knowledges that are being produced by the humanities. It is really presenting a major challenge to the status quo here. And as a result, these people, you know, who otherwise are the sort of free speech warriors are calling for these departments, these, you know, aspects of the institutions to be shuttered. Yeah, and the problem is that they're fighting a losing battle because what you're going to be seeing more and more of is STEM departments radicalizing because... What's really driving the radicalization of the humanities is, you know, an ongoing economic process of fewer and fewer opportunities and fewer and fewer good paying jobs and fewer and fewer departments that can actually support humanities scholars. And that is not limited to the humanities. It's it's affecting everyone throughout the academy. So I'm very curious to see where this line of argument goes as computer science departments and engineering departments and everyone else begins to radicalize more and more. Will they just start calling us all humanists? I don't know. Well, they'll they'll probably use the you know that term grievance studies that we talked about. The you know the so-called squared hacks came up with mm. that term to refer to essentially the humanities, but people who have a again a quote-unquote social justice ideology, basically people who just oppose the academic status quo, are you know these people who are you know not abiding by the 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 dictates of pure logic, you know the logics of civilization. Their arguments are very similar to what Kimball is making here. But what about when computer scientists exactly. start designing, you know, femini- yeah. feminist programs and exactly. uh, and anti-imperialist robots? Social what? justice ideology. Right. We need to get it out of the academy. Yeah. Uh, you love to see it. And, yeah. I, you know, I think at a certain point, the arguments get so self-defeating and conflicted that you really don't even know what to say to this stuff. Yeah. Honestly, I, I don't. I mean, I think... To be honest, the the best tack against things like this, I mean, if you really want to address it on a intellectual level, let's start, you know, questioning logical positivism. Let's let's question, you know, that sort of idea that there is a pure logic or a pure rationality, you know, I mean, because that's the intellectual side of this argument is 
saying that, you know, grievance studies exist because, you know, there is such thing as epistemic truth, <laughs> you know, capital T, and, you know, the people who are trying to get you to buy into postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever are trying to obscure that. So starting with them, because again, this person is citing, is using the term grievance studies, which is, you know, invented by this sort of rationalist uh, clique. And then, you know, yeah, essentially just going from there, like the, these, these people are only really appropriating it though, because I think it serves their political ends, which should be telling about, you know, the kinds of things that the, you know, the SoCal squared people or the intellectual dark web is putting out into society. This is the people who are taking it up running with it are these far-right cranks who are calling for universities to be shuttered. But I think the, the, the point that we need to push back on this hyper-rationalist ideology, the, the best evidence, the best ammunition we have to push back against that is their own arguments. Yes. I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, they are so racked with emotion. I yes. mean, these are, there's there's so, no logic to any of it. <laughs> there's no logic. There's very little evidence. And there's a, an amazing amount of pathos. Yes. I mean, these people are horrified. They're quavering. They are just red and mad um, and hopefully not nude. Uh, <laughs> Definitely online, though. They're extremely online. Always online. Always, never log Consistently off. hunched in front of their computers and that's really the cosmic justice that uh, we all deserve exactly absolutely it is and with that we will say farewell forever to these awful awful articles and to these awful awful academic institutions yes exactly good riddance <laughs> Bye-bye. So thank you for joining us today, everybody. Uh, we really suffered through that one, but I hope that we got our uh, our points across here. Yeah. Anything else to say, Calvin? Nothing from me. Just let's all band together and be logical <laughs> and do our best to destroy the social justice. No more social justice. Let's no just... Social justice, it's canceled, folks. Yeah. Just individual injustice. That's right. Yep. Injustice for me. Yep. Let that be the end of it. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.